1: Getting eight hours of sleep every night? Check. Eat a quality, plant-based diet? Check. Exercise four or more times a week? Check. Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure that you lead a long life. So isn't it time that you were financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? Q Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash naked scientist to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared with other providers. Again, that's healthiq.com slash naked scientist to let them know we sent you and start the process with the Health IQ quiz. There's no commitment, and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthily. That's healthiq.com slash naked scientists.
2: I have you loud and clear.
3: (laughs) Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome.
1: (laughs) Science. And that is to say. Physics. Medicine. Nature. Or.
3: big Time. Brain. Life. The Universe.
1: Hello. This week, optogenetics, how scientists are using light to control brain cells and other tissues. It promises to deliver new treatments for epilepsy, and we'll be hearing how.
4: Plus, growing replacement organs in animals and a computer programme that has taught itself to diagnose skin cancer better than a doctor. I'm Kat Arney.
1: I'm Chris Smith, and you're listening to The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First this week, engineers in America have developed a computer program that can train itself to spot skin cancers in photos from a patient's skin and then in tests it does it as successfully as a panel of trained skin specialists.
5: Stanford PhD student André Estevar invented it. What we've done is to build a computer algorithm, like a computer program, that can match the performance of board-certified dermatologists at identifying whether or not an image of a skin lesion is benign or malignant. And we've tested it across three really important medical diagnostic use cases, which include identifying carcinomas, including basal and squamous cell carcinomas, from their benign counterparts, as well as identifying malignant melanoma from normal, ordinary moles. And you do this by
1: showing the computer program images of these respective lesions?
5: That's correct. We use a data-driven approach, which in contrast to previous computer programs where you would tell the computer, do step one, do step two, do step three. Instead, what we do is we feed the computer a massive amount of data. We show it images and we tell it what those images are of, for instance, malignant melanoma. And it learns through a training process how to distinguish between benign and malignant all on its own.
1: Now when you say you feed it a massive amount of data, just define what does that mean in practical terms? How much data?
5: We're using about 1.4 million total images. We use about 1.28 million images of normal everyday objects. You see, training this algorithm is split up into two steps. In the first step, you're sort of teaching the algorithm what the world looks like. You show it images of everyday objects like cats and dogs and tables and chairs. And in the second step, you show it images of skin disease. And there we use almost 130,000 images of skin disease, over 2,000 different disease types.
1: So it then learns what it's looking for as the first sort of a priori thing. And then once it knows what it's looking for, ah, that is skin, that is a skin lesion, then it begins to extract the corresponding data that that tells it what the diagnosis might be, benign, malignant, and what sort of malignant disease.
5: That's about right, yes. How does it know it's got it right? We know the ground truth. So we have a test set of images that the algorithm has never seen before. And after we train the algorithm, we test it on just under 2,000 different images, all biopsy-proven, which means that a pathologist has confirmed if they're benign or malignant. And so we can gauge its accuracy. And how accurate was it? In other words, how good is it? What we did in this work was an image-by-image comparison. We showed to the dermatologist an image of a lesion, and then we showed to the algorithm an image of the exact same lesion, and we asked them, would you biopsy or treat this lesion, or would you reassure the patient? And that allowed us to determine a sensitivity and specificity for each. What we found is that the algorithm performed on par with all tested experts. And in fact it performed as well
1: or better than a panel of 21 dermatologists or skin doctors. So what do the experts make of it?
6: My name is Sansie Leachman. I'm the chair of the Department of Dermatology at the Oregon Health and Science University. What we struggle with in dermatology is not being able to quickly see enough patients who have something that might be concerning. And what this particular machine does is it allows their moles or their skin lesions to be checked really quickly by a, an objective source without necessarily having to have a dermatologist on hand to do it.
1: Do we know whether a picture of a particular skin complaint is as good as showing the dermatologist the skin complaint literally in the flesh?
6: Well, we actually do have some data on that. There have been some papers published looking at whether or not um, digital images are just as good as a human exam in person. And it turns out that it's not perfect. It's not not quite as good, but it's very, very close. It's close enough that it's probably good enough to triage people, to be able to tell people... um, do you really need to see a doctor or is this clear enough that we can avoid that office visit? And that's huge um, when you have an overburdened healthcare system.
1: Well, we should know all about that with the NHS. But what do you think the scale of the problem that it can solve is? How big is this?
6: Well, I mean, when you're talking about just this first step, um, thinking about all of dermatology, if you could really um, use it to detect uh, all kinds of skin diseases, that would be pretty big. But if you think about getting it to work for dermatology and then having it extend to radiology or pathology or ophthalmology, then you're talking about it extending throughout the entire field of medicine, and it's huge. It's absolutely huge.
1: Are you comfortable with that, though? Do you not think that there might be some shortcomings here because you are replacing a human being with a computer program and computer programs don't have emotions, they don't have human instincts, but moreover they may not also spot other glaring diagnoses that a person with a mole that's actually benign needn't worry about but the other thing that will kill them next week will be completely overlooked?
6: Yes, that's all obviously a concern. And it's not that different from how we use um, automatic flying systems, guidance systems in an airplane. You still need that pilot there to be able to override. And I think this it, it's similar with this kind of technology, that you want to um, have a backup person. And I, I do think that the false sense of security part of this is that you still need a person To decide what lesion needs to be examined by the machine. So you might end up having a person who wants to check something that they think is bad, but it turns out they have something that's much, much worse on their back that they don't even know about. And if they'd gone in to see the doctor in person, that might have been detected.
1: Still amazing though, isn't it? That was Sansi Leachman and before her André Estevar, and the work was published this week in the journal Nature.
4: The UK Food Standards Agency has recently issued a health warning about the chemical acrylamide. It's found in starchy foods such as bread and potatoes and they're saying it may cause cancer. The warning coincides with the launch of a new health initiative called go for gold which is encouraging people only to cook foods to a golden yellow rather than brown or black to help reduce the amount of acrylamide in them. Tom Crawford spoke to Jasmine Just at Cancer Research UK.
7: So acrylamide is essentially a, it's a naturally occurring chemical. So that means we don't add it to foods, it just naturally is produced. And it's mainly found in foods when those foods are cooked at high temperatures and for particularly long periods of time. So um, it's usually when foods are baked or fried or roasted or toasted. Um, and so if we're looking at the foods that acrylamide is found in most commonly, it's in things like crisps, chips, biscuits, bread and cake these foods that I've mentioned, they contain the building blocks for this, um, for acrylamide to form basically. So there's a special reaction. It's got a quite a long name. It's called the maillard reaction. So basically that's a chemical reaction that occurs between sugars and amino acids that are in the foods. When these two things, the sugars and amino acids react, and also with water, um, that produces this reaction and it gives off acrylamide or creates acrylamide, and that's what gives the brown colour to food. And it can also change the taste of food as well. So it gives that gives it that sort of um, sort of roasted, charred sort of taste that you might know.
8: So we're thinking like like roast potatoes or browned toast.
7: Yes, that's right. Yep, that's the Maillard reaction.
8: And why is acrylamide bad? What's what's the potential issue here?
7: Well, the concern has basically come from a number of animal studies that have actually found acrylamide has the potential to damage our DNA inside cells, and basically DNA damage can lead to cancer. So it's really important, though, that people remember that the same process hasn't been established in humans, so we don't have the data, we don't have the evidence to say that there's also a link between acrylamide and cancer risk at the moment, so we need more research in that area.
8: So how significant is the actual risk?
7: The risk is basically being described as a probable risk. It is in no way a definite risk. And by that, I'm talking about cancer specifically. So if we compare the risk of acrylamide with things like smoking obesity, basically, I can't do that. We can't can't say that if you have X amount of acrylamide, your risk is going to be... Why. We just don't have the data or the evidence to be able to put a figure on how high your risk of cancer would be based on your acrylamide intake.
8: It sounds to me, from what you were saying earlier, about it occurs in the largest amounts in biscuits, crisps, sort of, they're generally unhealthy. So, like, you know, we want to be avoiding these foods if possible anyway.
7: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's our message from Cancer Research UK that we don't want to tell people not to eat specific foods we don't want to say avoid having a roast potato now and then or avoid you know try and avoid eating burnt toast our main message is that people should be maintaining a healthy balanced diet in the first place and a healthy balanced diet basically is one that's going to be low in those sorts of foods anyway so yeah as you mentioned crisp chips and biscuits they're not everyday foods they're things that shouldn't be eaten regularly to begin with
8: and are there any other sort of ways that we can reduce the risk
7: uh, well, the FSA is also recommended, for example, uh, if you are going to be cooking some chips, for example, just follow the cooking recommendations on the packet. Um, they've also made some recommendations such as avoiding storing your potatoes in the fridge, which increases the potential for the potatoes to develop acrylamide when you when you cook them.
8: Storing potatoes in the fridge seems quite crazy to me. <laughs> um,
7: yes, I personally don't store them there. So no, no, me If neither. you do... Um, <laughs> don't yeah um but the other thing that cancer research uk we really want to get across the point that there are other things that will have a much bigger impact on your cancer risk so if you're a smoker stopping smoking if you drink a lot of alcohol try and cut down um, keeping healthy weight they're all things that are going to have a much bigger impact on reducing your cancer risk the odd crispy potato isn't going to do you any harm at all
4: Well, that is good to hear because I do like my roasted potatoes and veg. That is Tom Crawford with Jasmine Just from Cancer Research UK.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Kat Arney. Still to come, how scientists are controlling the brain using light and how a vaccination could help to combat the influence of fake news.
4: But first, a replacement pancreas that cures diabetic mice has been grown successfully in an animal of a different species by scientists in Japan. Tomiyuki Yamaguchi and his colleagues injected mouse stem cells into developing rat embryos. Once the rat had developed, they were able to transplant the pancreas tissue into a group of diabetic mice, fixing their blood sugar levels for more than a year. Zhou Chow, he's a stem cell biologist at Harvard University who wasn't involved in the research, took Chris through what the Tokyo-based team have achieved.
9: What they did essentially is they managed to grow a mouse pancreas in a rat and then they subsequently harvested this mouse pancreas from the rat and transplanted into a diabetic mouse and was able to show that this can reverse the diabetes of the recipient mouse.
1: Now, why is that a breakthrough?
9: First of all, this has never been done before. This whole process, I think, it points a potential way to grow organs for future clinical use in human organ transplantation. I think that's the exciting part of it. It's a proof of concept.
1: How did they do it?
9: So the way they did it is they took mouse pluripotent stem cells, also called embryonic stem cells, that are capable of giving rise to all tissues and body parts, and injected them into a very early stage rat embryo and at this point the embryo is just a ball of cells. The mouse injected stem cells intermingled with the resident rat stem cells and together they give rise to a rat but in this rat which is called a chimeric rat every tissue and body part has both rat cells and mouse cells. This is true for pancreas normally. You will have a mixture of red cells and mouse cells. Except in this case, now the scientists used a method to suppress the growth of the red pancreas so that the pancreas itself is entirely or almost entirely made up of mouse cells. And it was
1: from that mouse pancreas tissue that they then extract this mouse pancreas and put that back into other mice to show that it works as pancreatic tissue capable of controlling their blood sugar.
9: Yes, exactly. They didn't use the entire pancreas, but groups of cells, these so-called endocrine ID cells, these are the hormone secreting component of the pancreas, Secrete insulin to regulate blood glucose levels to cure diabetes.
1: Now, the pancreas that grew in the donor rat... Was the tissue exclusively mouse tissue or were there other rat tissues in there? Because the thing is that although they stopped the pancreas forming, they didn't stop things like important structures like blood vessels from forming. So did they end up with mouse pancreas tissue with rat
9: blood vessels in it? That is indeed the case. So uh, you are exactly right. The majority of the cells in the pancreas are derived from the donor mouse, but a minor fraction of the cells came from the red host, including blood vessels.
1: And is that not a consideration that when you transplant that tissue, were you to use a similar technique in a person, say, way in the future, you would potentially be transplanting animal blood vessel tissue with that organ, you might get a fairly vicious immune response against that foreign tissue, which could destroy your your donor tissue.
9: Absolutely. That is a major concern. But what is surprising in this study is they have shown that if you use a relatively mild immunosuppressant to treat the recipient mouse for just a few days, that seems to be sufficient to suppress rejection
1: what are the dangers of doing this kind of thing? If we are to see this come to fruition and we were to start using this as a source of spare parts for people, what could go wrong?
9: The clear danger would be in the creation of the chimeric human animal. You don't want contribution of human cells into animals' uh, nervous system or even uh, you know, morphological features. Are there
1: risks from things like infection? Is there not a chance we could bring some additional infective cargo with it, which could unleash some kind of problem for everybody afterwards?
9: Yes. So that has been concern voiced for a long time. And, for example, in the pig, there are xenogenic viruses that can move around. But there are new technologies that being been applied, for example by a group in Boston where they have been able to eliminate all the xenogenic viruses from the pig genome. So I think the technology is the point where we can get a super clean animal that don't have any viruses that could potentially be transmitted. I think that can be done technically and people have taken important steps in that direction.
4: That's Zhou Chow from Harvard commenting on the announcement this week by scientists in Tokyo. The research was published in the journal Nature.
1: Time now for our regular myth conception where we roll up our sleeves and get stuck into dubious science. This week Ginny Smith has done some brain training.
10: If you could improve your memory, attention and reaction time just by playing a few simple games for 15 minutes a day, wouldn't you want to? Well, that's what the huge number of brain training games on the market for your phone or tablet computer are offering. But it seems their claims might be too good to be true. Indeed, since the time brain training games first went mainstream, the scientific community has been divided over whether these activities really can streamline your mind. The premise seems to make sense. Connections between brain cells can be strengthened the more we use them, and we also know that the brain can change visibly in response to the way we use it. Take the study of taxi drivers learning the layout of London, for instance. The region of the brain called the hippocampus, which mentally maps out the world for us, was much bigger in the cabbies after they learned the London roadmap than before they began their taxi training. So it doesn't seem surprising that there are lots of studies that claim to show that brain training games have mind sharpening benefits too. But a more recent review suggests that, in fact, the evidence for any benefit is far too weak to back up the claims companies make. Because writing in the journal Psychological Science in the Public Interest, a group of psychologists led by Daniel Simons at the University of Illinois scrutinised the 374 studies cited by the leading brain training companies in support of their products. The analysis showed that the majority of the studies didn't measure up to the best practice they'd defined. They just weren't good science. The sample sizes were small or the studies lacked a control group or proper baseline, making the results at best dubious and more likely meaningless. Many studies also failed to account for the placebo effect. If you're told that playing a game will make you better at something, you might get better at it just because you expect to, with no help from the game at all. That said, there were a few solid studies amongst those the team reviewed, But damningly, these didn't show any substantial benefits for brain function across the board. Instead, people only tended to get better at the task being trained. People who use them do become better at the specific game they're practising, but unfortunately, this doesn't carry over into other aspects of your everyday life. So if brain training games don't help keep you sharp, is there anything you can do to ensure your brain stays healthy? Luckily the answer's yes and it's free. There's a lot of evidence that physical exercise has benefits for the brain as well as the body as does a healthy diet and an active social life. So if you want to stave off the ravages of time put down the computer game controller and grab someone to accompany you on a nice walk
1: instead. So yet another reason to get out a bit more. Ginny Smith there, and if you've come across something suspicious that you'd like us to look into, scientifically speaking, drop us a line to chris at com, and we'll get on the case. Now, with 2016 being announced as the hottest year on record, lots of people are talking about climate change, but not everyone agrees that humans are in fact altering our climate. Donald Trump famously tweeted that it was a hoax orchestrated by the Chinese, and there are plenty of websites that are arguing the same thing. And that can, of course, cause confusion for the average person.
4: Well, thankfully, scientists at Cambridge University have come up with a way to protect people against fake news in the form of a vaccination. Georgia Mills went to get inoculated, but first she checked in with climate specialist Doug Crawford-Brown to find out whether specialists really do agree on this issue.
2: The large majority are. So typically you you see numbers of 98% or so of scientists, relevant scientists uh, agreeing with with 2% being on, on the outside. And it's about as certain as one needs to be at the moment to do the policy measures. But certainly there are some conflicting signals that that we get. So we would expect that perhaps continuously the temperature would be going up, but it's not. It stabilizes since since about uh, 2005, 2006, and is only now again starting to go back up again. So that little bit of information provides a sort of counterweight against an overwhelming body of information suggesting that the climate... It is in fact changing at the moment and will change very dramatically under uh, the the next uh, several decades.
11: And why is there this stabilisation?
2: Uh, well, it has a lot of different causes. Uh, some of them have to do with the El Niño-La Niña cycle. Um, some of them have to do with issues of heat being pushed down into the ocean until the ocean has equilibrated and then it comes back in, in into the atmosphere again. So there there are lots of causes of it, um, but it does produce this escalator or step function in, in the temperature.
11: So scientists, by and large, are agreed. But are they? There's a petition online signed by 30,000 scientists stating that climate change is a lie. Sounds pretty convincing. It's even been signed by Charles Darwin and the Spice Girls. Wait a minute. This sounds like it might not be genuine. And as Sander van der Linden from Cambridge University found out, show someone a fake petition like this alongside a real article and they effectively cancel each other out. So how do you fight this? Well... Him and his team reasoned if fake news is the virus, perhaps you could vaccinate against
12: it. Is it possible to preemptively inoculate people against a fake news? And the way we went about doing that is that in the sort of the brief inoculation, we first warn people that there's politically motivated groups out there with an agenda. And in a detailed inoculation... We went beyond that to specifically debunk the misinformation that that people were shown, so to basically arm people with facts to counteract that information. And so then we showed people the actual misinformation and found that they were more resistant to the the information after they were um, sort of pre-exposed and inoculated to it. And this process of pre-exposing people preemptively to information, debunking it, that helps people build this cognitive repertoire of counter-arguments that they can use to to resist influence and, and misinformation.
11: By showing people this warning or disclaimer, Sander and his team found you could effectively vaccinate people against the fake news stories, so they had less of an effect on your overall opinion. Legitimate news sites like the BBC or social media services could implement this as a way of tackling the rise in this trend. But why does fake news seem to have such traction?
12: So at least, you know, one of the things that I'm really interested in is what I call the psychology of consensus. And so we, we, we tend to pay attention to consensus in a lot of domains. One is the social domain. And so the way it works is that when something, whereas there's an implicit consensus or social proof that something is important, we we tend to um, interact with it without deeply thinking about it. So if something's been shared a million times and a video has been viewed, you know, two million times, um, people simply share it without thinking. And so I think just because it's attractive and it signals to people this must be important because everyone's paying attention to it and that sort of creates a self-sustaining mechanism where something gets shared. Much like a virus, it gets replicated at a very high rate and at that at that rate it might overturn the uh, the, the rate of actual news. And I think intervening in that process is actually one of the most crucial elements to try to prevent people from sharing information before they've assessed the facts. Hopefully will science will win out. Science for the win.
11: But why does climate change in particular seem to attract these fake news articles and conspiracy theories? Douglas Crawford Brown again.
2: Well, partially it's simply because the science is still relatively new, despite the fact that we've been looking at it for 200 years. Um, the science is relatively new. It's really been in the last 10 years that we've started to get, or 15 years that we've started to get really strong information. So the public partially is simply lagging behind uh, the development of the science. But the main issue is that if there is in fact climate change going on, which I think there is, then we're looking at some potentially dramatic changes in people's lifestyles and And people generally don't want to have to change their lifestyle. They would rather have a policy that focuses on bad industry or something like that. They don't like to think in terms of their own lives as causing the problem. And whenever you know that a policy is going to lead to you having to do something dramatic, there's a tendency to to sort of back away and say, well, maybe there's not a problem at all.
11: I know there's this issue on social media of people being in bubbles of things and which bubble would you rather be in the bubble that tells you everyone's going to have a real problem a couple of years or the bubble that says we're all going to be fine.
2: Yeah, I mean that that's actually been the problem associated with social media particularly as people increasingly get their news from things like Facebook and so forth where you can get into a little bubble you go into there because you like something that you've heard there and then because you like it you tend to keep going back to that same place if these sources of social media information were being complete and unbiased and giving you the full information then I wouldn't be so worried about that but of course they're not they're They're attempting to be um, uh, sensationalistic. They're attempting to attract a lot of likes and so forth. And you tend to believe things that you like.
4: Georgia Mills speaking to Doug Crawford-Brown and before him, Sander van der Linden. And they're both from Cambridge University.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Kat Arney. And now we're moving the spotlight onto the brain as we light up the field of optogenetics.
4: It may seem like science fiction, but with this technology, scientists can control the behaviour of animals by simply shining a light into their brains. But how does it work? And what are the implications for us as humans?
1: But first, let's go back to where it all began, and that was in algae would you believe? These single cell plants are powered by the sun and they contain built-in light detectors to control their behaviour. This discovery and the isolation of the light sensitive protein that's responsible led to the birth of the new science that we call optogenetics. Tom Crawford went to see Cambridge University's Otti Crozer and Kyriakos Leptos to try to catch some of these incredible life forms and in this circumstance under extreme conditions.
8: It's about minus 10. Um, well, it's not, but it's freezing, and we are going to be catching some algae. The first thing we've got to do here is actually break the ice. That is how cold it is. We have, we have a cup of freezing cold water, with I can see a few little bits of salt and silt and things floating around in there. So, hopefully, we have some algae in there. We can hope. <laughs> So that was fun, Otty, uh, scooping out some water from the freezing pond. But what are we actually looking for here?
13: So we are searching for microscopic algae, which are about a hundredth of a millimetre or a tenth of the average human hair. So these algae are not visible to the naked eye. um, But algae are an extremely uh, diverse type of organism and some algae are actually macroscopic such as the seaweed that you might eat in your sushi.
8: Is there a specific um, algae that we're looking for that is used in the field of optogenetics?
13: Yes, we're not guaranteed to find it in this pond, but um, optogenetics uh, was born from the soil uh, microalga uh, Chlamydomonas reinhardti, so that's ideally what we would want to find. As Otty mentioned, we're trying to find
8: the alga Chlamydomonas. This is a single-celled marine plant which has arms called flagella, which it uses to swim towards a light source so that it can photosynthesize and make food. It does this by using a protein called channel rhodopsin, which is light sensitive. This triggers the flagella to move and propel the alga towards the light. But by taking the channel rhodopsin gene from the alga and introducing it to nerve cells in the brain, scientists can use it like a switch to turn these nerve cells on or off just by shining light onto them. Now let's head back to the nice and warm lab. You can see some samples on the bench and there's a, there's a bottle of what looks like clear water, but then if you actually look at the right-hand side, the entire right-hand side of the container is green, almost as though the algae are concentrated in one spot. Kyriakos, what's going on there?
14: That's a phenomenon that is called phototaxis. It's basically a behavior of the microalga. Algae are photosynthetic, so they harvest uh, light to produce their biomass. They need to be able to detect the light so that they can survive. So here
8: the algae have moved to the right of the container because there's a window on the right hand side.
14: (laughs) Uh, Yes, so phototaxis is actually the directed motion towards the light. So they need to have a sensor to detect the light and that's called an eye spot. What's used in optogenetics is a particular part of the eye spot which is the one that is actually sensing the light.
8: The part of the eye spot that Kyriakos is referring to is the protein channel rhodopsin that I mentioned earlier. Now let's see if we manage to catch anything from the frozen pond. Okay I'm looking down the microscope now and I can see a little it's just a little dancing circle almost. What type of algae have we found?
13: From its morphology, it might be um, the alga euglena, but uh, you y- you can't be sure just looking at it to to be absolutely sure you would have to uh, sequence it, and then there are regions of the DNA of algae that act as barcodes um, which um, allow you to identify species quite uniquely i'm
8: just impressed we found anything really, considering the pond was frozen. <laughs>
1: Maybe January isn't the best month to go pond dipping, Tom. That was Cambridge University's Otti Crozer and Kyriakos Leptos, and they were talking with Tom Crawford.
4: So, how do we get from pond life to controlling the brain with light? To find out, we're joined now by Isabel Christie from University College London. She's going to guide us out of the darkness. Hello. Hi. Okay, we've seen these algae out of the pond, and there's this molecule, this protein, channel rhodopsin, and they have a gene for it. So, then how do you get that protein, get that gene into animals or or other types of cells to do these studies. Tell me about what is optogenetics then? What are we doing? Well, fortunately, we can use very clever genetics to take those
0: genes from the pond life and put those into viruses. And then we can inject the viruses into the brain of a living animal, such as a mouse or a rat. And the cells that we've chosen to target using the virus will start to express that light-sensitive protein.
4: So I guess like in the same way when you catch a cold, a virus is delivering virus genes into you, making you go all snotty and all that kind of thing, you're actually taking these light-sensitive genes into the brain cells of the animal that you're working with?
0: Absolutely. Once the cells have become infected by the virus, they start to produce that viral DNA and they start to produce those proteins.
4: So the proteins are in these brain cells and, and how do you make sure that it's just certain types of brain cells or is it all any brain cells the virus infects?
0: Well, that's the really clever bit, the genetics angle, is that we can choose which cells in the brain we would like to express the light-sensitive protein and that's what gives this tool such great power because we can choose excitatory cells or inhibitory cells in the brain and we can target specifically which cells we'd like to make light sensitive.
4: So what's the benefit of making say a, a certain group of nerve cells, a little clump in the brain, you're making them sensitive to light by putting this molecule in them. So you shine a light on them and they go woo...
0: What do you do then? Well, it's all about control, basically. As neuroscientists, we want to understand the neural circuits of the brain. And one of the ways we can begin to understand them is to try and control them, turning them on or turning them off at will. One of the big challenges for neuroscience was this inability to control only specific brain cells at once. The more traditional techniques, using things like drugs, um, tend to affect many brain cells at once. So when you put a drug directly into the brain, it will spread out in the brain and it will affect all the cells in the region. The really clever thing about optogenetics is that if we make only some brain cells light sensitive, when we shine light into that part of the brain, only certain cells respond. And that gives us an ability to control the brain in a very specific way. So we can test hypotheses in a way that we just couldn't before with drugs. So you can say
4: okay if these cells go on what's happening
0: exactly and some of my research is about saying if we turn these cells on what happens in an mri scanner what happens in the in the animal's brains or if you've a researching a particular disease where you've thought that some particular cells were responsible for causing that something to happen in the brain, you can turn those cells on and really test that hypothesis in a very direct way. So
4: we've got the genes, they're delivered into the nerve cells, they're making this light sensitive protein, they're switching on but how do you actually do that? How do you get light inside the brain? Last time I looked the brain was quite dark inside. Yeah, it's
0: one of the um, awkward aspects I guess of optogenetics. Um, so some of the first experiments that were ever done were done in a Petri dish with a slice of living brain tissue and it was very easy you could deliver light through your um, microscope objective or via an optic fibre but most optogenetics these days is being done in living animals so what we might do is when we're doing the viral injections into directly into the brain we will implant an optic fibre into the brain and then on the day of the experiment you can come and connect an optic fibre to the externally to the animal's head
4: So it's kind of like almost like plugging in a remote control. It
0: really is. If you look at images of optogenetics on the internet, you really will see freely behaving animals with optic fibres plugged into the back of their head. So it can look quite shocking when you see these images. But
4: presumably, you know,
0: they're okay. It's quite an invasive process, optogenetics. You're injecting viruses into the brain and then you're implanting optic fibres into the brain. But some of the great power of this research is that you can do experiments in awake, freely behaving animals. So people have designed very clever... Techniques of um, connecting the animal's head to the optic fibre so they can still move around their cage and explore and do sort of natural behaviours. Why is this tool so powerful? being able to control the brain in a very sort of temporal, specific way. You can turn cells on exactly when you want to and not off when you want to. There are so many hypotheses I feel like almost (laughs) every neuroscientist is trying to use optogenetics because it it gives you a level of control that we just never had before.
4: And it feels like a a very exciting new tool and my specialism is in genetics and following CRISPR for gene editing and then following optogenetics for really precisely activating cells and and switching on nerve cells. Mm. Does it feel like finally, we've got this tool.
0: I think it is one of the most powerful research tools that we've ever had in neuroscience and I think it, it's already revealing so much about the brain. Just very cutting edge and very exciting times for neuroscience.
4: Do you reckon it's going to be a Nobel Prize winner?
0: Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think so. it will be probably shared by Carl Docero and Ed Boyden and probably um, Gero Meisenbrock.
4: And like you say, so many different ideas to be tested out there. I mean, it's just so
0: wide-ranging. It doesn't have to all be inside the brain. You can also look at the peripheral nerves and you could look
4: at um, other parts of the body it's it's very powerful turning everything on thank you very much that's isabel christie from university college london
1: and you might think that sounds a bit far-fetched but actually we'll hear shortly how scientists are also trying to do this in humans now we do have this incredible neurological tool as isabel was saying but what exactly can we do with it In terms of research, well, Gero Misenberg is one of the pioneers who you heard mentioned there of this field. And he's actually using the technique in fruit flies, which he can put to sleep simply by flashing a red light in their direction. Tom Crawford went over to Oxford University, where he's based, to meet Gero and find out why he's doing this.
15: Neuroscience has for a long time just passively recorded the function of the brain and tried to draw conclusions from these observations. But of course, in order to really understand how a system works, you have to be able to control it. So we do this by hooking up the gene that encodes the light sensor to a gene that's linked to a particular characteristic of uh, the nerve cell. In simple terms,
8: what Gero is saying is that they first identify the neurons in the brain which they think are responsible for a particular behaviour. For example, the area of a fly's brain that causes it to go to sleep. The DNA of these cells is then altered such that the neurons can be turned on by red light. The theory is then tested in the lab, where a red light is shone at the fly from above. The light penetrates the skull of the fly and activates these specific neurons that have been genetically altered. These neurons then switch on, and hopefully will cause the fly to fall asleep. Of course, this is provided that the team have identified the correct circuitry in the brain that controls sleep. Okay, I'm now outside the the room where the experiments on the flies are being conducted, and uh, we're just about to enter. It's going to be very dark. Okay, yes, as, as suspected, the room is really dark. There's a little patch of green light illuminating what I can see on the screen is is a little fruit fly inside some kind of very small, sort of the size of a, a one-pence coin, little rubber sort of walled area, it seems. And the fly is just sitting in there, not moving, and has a green light shined on it from above. So, Gera, what, what is it that I'm looking at?
15: Um, you're looking at a fly that um, is just having its afternoon siesta. It's about 2.30 in the afternoon at the moment, which is when many flies are sleeping. So what you're seeing here is not optogenetically induced sleep, but just normal, natural sleep. Okay, we brought out a second fly now, and um,
8: this guy is definitely not having a nap. I can see him moving around on the screen, and if I look down really closely, I can see the little tiny guy just fluttering his wings and seems to be grooming himself almost. And now we've turned on um, this high 60 flashes per second red light, and the fly's stopped moving. He's kind of sprawled his legs, almost almost like a starfish, you can imagine, if, if you're really tired and you sort of fall face down onto your bed with all your limbs spread out. Pretty much what the fly is doing, and
15: he has completely stopped moving. Is it safe to assume the fly was asleep there? By every behavioral criterion, yes. We know that the flies, um, when they're in this optically induced state, show the classical hallmarks of sleep. That is, they don't move, they don't support their own body weight, and they also have heightened arousal thresholds. So if you give them, for instance, a light or a tap meant to wake them up, these stimuli need to be more intense to actually elicit a response.
8: And the the red light has now been switched off, and almost instantly our fly started moving again. He's gone back to, to shaking his wings around and crawling around on the lid of the dish which he's contained in. It's really quite amazing to see how quickly, you know, I mean, I can't wake up that quickly in the morning, so I'm impressed the fly can.
1: Don't we know, Tom, based on what time you turn up for work in the morning. That was Gero Misenberg from the University of Oxford, and he was speaking to Tom Crawford, who you heard there.
4: This is The Naked Scientist with me, Katani, and also with Chris Smith. Today, we're unlocking the neurological toolkit that is optogenetics. So far, we've heard how a light-sensitive protein found in algae can be implanted into the brain to provide remote control over animals. But what about humans?
1: Well, there are a range of conditions that might well be treated using this technique. One of them is epilepsy, and Andrew Jackson is leading a project called Can Do in Newcastle.
16: So uh, what the CanDo project is aiming to to do is it's a combined therapy that involves a gene therapy to um, render neurons sensitive to light using optogenetics technology. Um, and also a a brain implant. And that implant has the capability to both record electrical signals from the brain and send light into the brain um, to control neurons. And the aim of this is to um, develop a therapy that will prevent the seizures that arise from uh, epilepsy conditions.
1: Now, when a person has epilepsy, what is actually going on in their brain to produce the manifestations that people are probably familiar with, fits and seizures?
16: Uh, The particular type of epilepsy that we're we're talking about here is focal epilepsy, and that's where a small part of the brain is behaving abnormally, Um, and uh, the neurons become excessively synchronised and start firing in a very rhythmic manner. Now, this abnormal activity then starts propagating through the brain network, um, leading to a seizure, which is then associated with um, uncontrolled movements, loss of consciousness, and things like that. And
1: How do we currently control epilepsy in patients who have this?
16: So, um, obviously, the the, the frontline treatment would be um, drugs, um, and there are a variety of drugs that that can be um, offered. But um, in quite a large proportion of cases, um, those drugs are not effective without um, unacceptable side effects. So there's actually quite a large um, population of people who have um, seizures that are not being controlled by by the existing uh, drugs. Now, the the other solution then in the case of focal epilepsy is for a a surgeon to go in um, effectively with a scalpel blade and and remove the part of the brain that is abnormal and is is generating these seizures. Um, But obviously, um, when we're talking about resecting part of the brain, that also has um, potential side effects, and there are certainly some parts of the brain which can't be um, removed like that without um, really severe side effects.
1: So if your project comes to fruition, how will it surmount those problems?
16: So the hope would be by using this implant and using the optogenetics technology, we could um, control that, that part of the brain, um, but without destroying its function. So allowing that part of the brain to operate normally, um, but preventing this abnormal activity from, from developing and causing a seizure. <laughs> Talk us through what would be
1: involved then. How would you, if you had a patient in front of you with epilepsy they can't control with drugs and the drugs that they do take cause horrible side effects and they say, right, I'm desperate, I want some other alternative and I don't want surgery, what would happen?
16: What we would do is the first step. Um, we would inject a, um, a, a viral vector. So this is a, a, a derived from a virus, but it's a virus that can't replicate, so it's so it's safe. Um, but that virus would be used to um, deliver the opsin uh, gene to specific um, neurons in the in the region of the the, the seizure focus. The second step would be implanting the, the, the brain implant, which um, we're envisaging is about the size of a drawing pin um, that gets put into the seizure focus. Now, this drawing pin has the capability of listening to the electrical activity in the, in the area of brain surrounding it. And as these abnormal patterns uh, start developing, the, this, this implant then delivers light to control specific cells in the vicinity in order to suppress the seizure activity and prevent it developing.
1: It's rather like these automatic implantable cardiac defibrillators that people with heart problems have fitted. As soon as they tune into a heart signature that suggests you might be about to have a cardiac arrest, it then kicks in with a shock and and sorts the heart rhythm out. Yours kicks in with a pulse of light, which resets the, the nerve firing rhythm.
16: That's right. So it's, it's worth pointing out that there are already quite a, a number of sort of successful devices that are used um, quite widespread in, in clinical conditions that use electrical stimulation to activate the, the nervous system. Um, so, so perhaps best example of this would be deep brain stimulation, which is a very good um, and established therapy for treating the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Um, now, there are also attempts to treat epilepsy with electrical stimulation, um, uh, but they, they only have sort of partial success. And part of the reason for this is that electrical Stimulation is, is rather like trying to play a musical instrument by hitting it with a, with a sledgehammer. You sort of play all the notes at once. Um, what optogenetics allows us to do is to um, use promoters to express the opsins, um, these light-sensitive proteins, in only specific cell types. And then we can activate um, particular cell types within the, the, the brain network. The other thing to say is that because we're stimulating um, with, with light... We can also at the same time record the electrical signals from the brain if you electrically stimulate Um, then those those currents that you're using are much larger than the currents that the brain produces, and so um, you can't record at the same time. So in principle, what this this closed-loop optogenetics allows us to do is to listen to what's going on in the brain and stimulate at the appropriate time. So that's rather like playing playing your musical instrument, not only playing the right notes, but also being able to listen to what the instruments around you and the rest of the orchestra are playing and play uh, the, the, the appropriate thing at the right time.
1: And what evidence have you got so far that were you to go down this path and put this into a person's brain who has epilepsy, you have a good chance of controlling their disease for them?
16: Um, so there's been some some um, promising studies in in animal models um that have used this optogenetics technique to control epilepsies. Um, we are also working with obviously extensive uh, computer simulations that allow us to to simulate the effect of the the optogenetic stimulation on the epileptic networks. Um, and then the other line of evidence, which, uh, um, we're working on but is, is currently very encouraging, is that we can actually take, as I said to you, the, the one of the, the main treatments at the moment for some of these epilepsies is to resect that part of the brain um, from from the, the the patient, and and here at Newcastle, um, my colleague Mark Cunningham, um, with the, the patient's consent, can actually take that tissue after it's been resected and start studying it um, in 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 dish in the laboratory. Um, and so we're beginning now to get um, data from actual human tissue um, having seizures and, and being able to look at the effect of optogenetics on on that activity.
1: It's mind blowing, or should that be mind? glowing, more accurately, stuff, isn't it? Andrew Jackson there from Newcastle University.
4: Now, as we alluded to earlier, it's not just epilepsy that could be cured using this technique. There are a whole host of other possible applications. We've still got Isabel Christie from UCL in the studio with us here. So, you know, you've talked about your work looking at the brain. We've heard from Andrew and his work in epilepsy. One of the obvious things to me seems eyes, vision, that's already light sensing and uh, scientists working on restoring vision using this kind of technique?
0: Absolutely, um, as you mentioned the cells in the retina are already light sensitive so one of the obvious ways to try and cure blindness would be to replace those light sensitive proteins in defective retinal cells so channel rhodopsin was expressed in the retina of blind mice in 2006 and in 2015 the FDA actually approved retinal targeting of channel rhodopsin expression. I understand that the first transfer of opsins to humans occurred in 2016. So I think this is a really active area of research and something to be really excited about.
4: And are there other tissues in the body, you know, other tissues that need to be excited, need to be turned on, that this kind of technique could be applied to?
0: Yeah, so there's been a lot of excitement about the idea of targeting cardiac myocytes, the heart muscle cells. Often a pacemaker can be applied to the heart in people that have heart conditions. And so cardiac myocytes can be stimulated in a similar way to nerve cells.
4: So you could do that really precisely, though, rather than just having
0: a battery pack. (laughs) Absolutely. As your previous speaker was just saying, the problem with electrical stimulation is it's like a sledgehammer. You often hit many of the cells at once, whereas with um, optogenetics you can target specific cells in a more localised way. So it would probably be much better for for pacemaking the heart as well.
4: And also Andrew touched on the idea of deep brain stimulation, particularly I'm thinking of Parkinson's disease, where there's Mm. certain cells that are not working properly and you want to kick them into action. Would this kind of work and, and is this really a good idea to use optogenetics? I think it's a brilliant idea because there are already
0: patients undergoing a very invasive surgery where they're having electrodes implanted into their brain. So they're already having a very invasive process. But if you were to use optogenetics, you would have to implant optic fibres into that part of the brain. And in addition to that, you would have to genetically modify those brain cells. So one of the ethical issues that we would have to deal with if we were going to start doing this in people is genetic modification of, of human brain cells. I think there might be some reluctance to do that.
4: Although, I mean, we have seen great advances in gene therapy lately. We've seen the sort of the tools that I've mentioned for gene editing, things like CRISPR, which enable these techniques to be done a a bit more accurately. It it feels like there there is a world opening
0: up, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I personally think if we can overcome the ethical issues associated with genetically modifying human tissue, then it will lead to many, many applications and many exciting things. But it's just something to consider. With deep brain stimulation, you're just implanting electrodes into the brain. This would be a two-step process. And I think one of the challenges is can we do gene editing in a in a continuous way you know can we modify these brain cells in a for long term not just temporarily
4: it certainly seems like a, a lot of exciting techniques that need to happen yeah it's a very exciting time for neuroscience thanks very much that's isabel christie from university college london thanks also to our other guests andrew jackson gero miesenberg otti krauser and kyriakos leptos
1: and now to finish the program it's time for question of the week with Greg Jackson, and listener Tim got in touch
5: with this. Is there any explanation why the magnetic field of Earth is north-south, as opposed to east-west, or any other angle?
3: Good point. To field your question, Tim, we have physicist Stuart Higgins from Imperial College London.
14: OK, first things first. You might be interested to know that the Earth has more than one north and south pole.
3: Um, what?
14: Yeah, it has geographic poles. These are the two points on the surface of the globe which the Earth rotates around. But it also has magnetic poles. These are where the Earth's magnetic field lines flow in and out of the Earth's surface. But the magnetic and geographic poles aren't the same. They're a few hundred kilometres apart.
3: OK, so where do the magnetic poles come from and why are they different?
14: Our current best theory is that the Earth's magnetic field is caused by its core. By studying vibrations from earthquakes as they pass through the Earth, scientists estimate that the core is made of a solid metallic centre surrounded by a layer of molten metal. It's the movement of this molten layer that's thought to create the Earth's magnetic field. So that's why the magnetic north and south poles line up with the geographic north and south, rather than, say, east-west. But as well as rotating, the layer also has convection currents, a swirling of the metal caused by intense heat. It's the combination of both rotation and convection that's responsible for the Earth's magnetic field. This is known as dynamo theory. This complicated movement, also influenced by other factors, mean that the magnetic and geographic poles don't quite line up. And in fact, throughout the Earth's history, they've continually switched places.
3: Fortunately for us, this doesn't happen very often. Can you imagine the calamity and confusion if all our compasses were wrong? On average, the poles switch every 250,000 years. And we know this...
14: By looking at patterns in different rock layers, it's possible to work out that the Earth's magnetic field has flipped direction many times in the past. Current researchers use supercomputers to try to model and understand this still mysterious behaviour. But what it does mean is that if the poles were to flip again, any compasses would be left pointing in completely the wrong direction.
3: Stuart Higgins turning our world upside down there. Next time, we'll be answering this smashing question from Down Under.
11: Hello, this is Faye in Sydney, Australia. I heard that due to an asteroid, a giant crater was formed 66 million years ago and the debris wiped out the dinosaurs. I have also been told that birds are dinosaurs.
4: So, how did the birds survive? So, do you know why all birds aren't dead as a dodo, or dead as a dinosaur? If so, point us in the right direction. You can email chris at com. You can find us on Facebook, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or join in the debate on our forum, nakedscientist.com slash
1: forum And that is it for this week. Thank you very much to Tom Crawford who put the programme together and do be sure to join us again next week to have all of your science questions answered. We'll assemble, as we always do, a panel of luminaries and they are waiting for your questions. Send them in to chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Until next time, from us here at The Naked Scientist, goodbye.
3: This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favourite shows and this is one we think you're going to love.
10: Today in Focus is the daily news podcast from The Guardian. Join me, Anushka Astana, every weekday as I bring you stories from across the UK and around the world will take you to the front line of the climate emergency. The
11: smoke smells like everything is on fire.
10: Behind the scenes in Westminster. We're in the sort of political wild west. And we'll cover the latest trends in technology and popular culture. TikTok,
1: TikTok, buzz, buzz, buzz.
3: ACAST is home to the biggest podcast from the US and around the world. Subscribe
9: to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST